At the end of my last podcast, I promised to discuss some of the offending agents in our food that can interfere with digestion, but I interrupt that proposed podcast with an urgent message. You don't hear the booming of cannon. You don't see collapsed, bombed-out buildings. Nor are there bullet-riddled corpses littering the streets. But we are at war, nevertheless. We have all seen news footage of refrigerated trailers gathered at hospitals to collect the legions of the dead. We have seen our medics overwhelmed. We are living through the social upheavals usually inflicted by war. Food has not been rationed as yet, but human interaction has. Education is disrupted. Life expectancy has dropped. The signs are obvious. We are at war. Hi, I'm Mark Timmon, the Healthy Geezer. I have a master's degree in clinical nutrition, and I've been studying the nutrition and biochemistry behind health and disease for over 50 years. If you want to know how to build better health and how to protect yourself against disease, then this is the place for you. Welcome to the Healthy Geezer podcast. This is episode 11. Let's be stupid. COVID-19 revisited again and again and again. The American Civil War took 618,222 souls over four years. World War II cost the United States 405,399 more over four years. World War I took the lives of 117,000 soldiers in a year and a half. As I prepare this podcast on January 10, 2022, the United States has lost 826,022 people to COVID-19 in a little more than a year and a half. If you think we are not at war, think again. If you think the United States is somehow superior in its intellect, morals, can-do attitude, or leadership, think again. The United States accounts for 15% of global COVID deaths. Our population of 329,500,000 is, however, only 4.2% of the world population. I'm embarrassed. How about you? We could say that we have shown leadership, nevertheless. We have shown the world how not to manage a pandemic. We have shown the world the weak underbelly of our pampered society. We have failed to pull together in the face of a crisis. The last generation to face such a destabilizing crisis, the generation that weathered the Great Depression and World War II, was forged into a mostly unified society. Common problems brought forth a sense of purpose aimed at solving the problem. In short, the life-threatening crises of the Depression and the war turned that generation into grown-ups. They knew how to recognize danger, and they knew how to collectively go out and meet that danger. Their children managed the shop, or rather our society today. The post-war luxury and relatively easy lifestyles in which they were raised spoiled them. Cohesiveness and cooperation have been overwhelmed by self-interest and divisive tribalism. Social media and the falsehoods it can push accelerate our breakup into tribes. We now have inflamed debates and arguments in the halls of government. We have conflict among economic groups. The great melting pot of the United States has been taken off the burner. Ethnic groups are congealing into camps fearful of each other. 
our republic is paralyzed. The exercise of personal liberty is empowering when it unleashes creativity toward a positive end. But the current period, where we now have the undisciplined exercise of personal liberty, has shown just how stupid we can be. It is unraveling the comforting shawl of a society that can unite against a common challenge. Personally liberated individuals are free to drop anchor anywhere. As society frays and the signposts pointing the way to right and wrong, truth and deceit, are torn down, those psychological wanderers may, sheep-like, anchor themselves to any harebrained leader who sounds authoritative no matter how ignorant, deceitful, or manipulative he may be. How many have eschewed a COVID vaccination because they saw someone else do it in the pursuit of personal freedom and thought that was a good idea without bothering to investigate and critically evaluate the issue? Here is where it pays to be a geezer. I am old enough and crotchety enough to have witnessed some important history as it pertains to vaccinations. There are lessons buried in the experience. Most of you will probably not recall the terror of polio. It had been around for millennia, but became a regular summertime visitor worldwide, in mostly urban centers, by the first few decades of the 20th century. By the 1940s and 1950s, polio would paralyze or kill 500,000 people around the globe every year. It killed far fewer than COVID, yet was feared everywhere. As a small child, I was aware of the devastating nature of polio. I listened to adults discussing the severity of each season's outbreak. I saw newsreels of adults and children surviving in iron lungs, ponderous machines that help polio victims breathe. They've been replaced by modern ventilators. So when Jonas Salk capped off five years of research with the announcement of his vaccine in 1953, he became the man of the year. The Salk vaccine was welcomed by everyone. I remember hopping on a school bus to be taken to, as I dimly recall, Northwestern University with all my other classmates. I was seven. We were ushered into a long brick building with girls on one side and boys on the other side of a makeshift curtain fashioned from olive drab World War II army blankets. I dropped my drawers when asked, gritted my teeth, and took the shot in my right rear buttock. The Salk vaccine was administered, like the COVID vaccines of today, free of charge, in a program of two shots, followed later by a booster. Later came the oral vaccine developed by Albert Sabin. I remember taking that one in late grade school. A booster followed in high school. The point is, the United States led by both deed and example. U.S. researchers Salk and Sabin developed the vaccines that were eventually rolled out across the globe to nearly eradicate the disease. Afghanistan and Pakistan have not yet been fully vaccinated, but only a handful of cases pop up worldwide each year. The U.S. set an example through its unanimous adoption of the polio vaccine by the nation's populace. There was no significant vaccine hesitancy. The assurances of safety put forward by the medical community and federal agencies were accepted and proved to be true. Americans were thankful and proud. Yeah, gotcha! One more disease vanquished by the brilliance of our scientists. Vaccines may seem to be a relatively recent advancement in the field of medicine, but it is only the speed of their development in recent years that makes it seem so. Vaccination against smallpox was available in China in the 1600s, and Edward Jenner's demonstration conferring immunity to smallpox by inoculating patients with cowpox 
led to the development of a smallpox vaccine in 1798, cholera, 1897, anthrax, 1904, and bubonic plague vaccines followed. My parents grew up in an era, roughly 1915 to 1940, that witnessed entire families quarantined at home with scarlet fever, whooping cough, diphtheria, or some other disease when one or more family members became ill. They lost friends and friends' parents to the diseases. As a result, they held a great appreciation for tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis, whooping cough, vaccines that appeared in 1923, 1926, and 1948, respectively. Their favorable regard for vaccines was well-founded. It carried over to polio and succeeding vaccines because of what they had learned of the vulnerability of life. So how have we come to doubt our scientists, our government, our medical industry? Where have all the conspiracy theorists, crackpots, cranks, charlatans, political buffoons, and downright idiots come from who naysay the COVID vaccines today? The breakdown of our cohesive society has allowed certain egos to be emboldened. They have bubbled up to the surface of a cauldron simmering over the fires of doubt, distrust, and fear. The fires of doubt, distrust, and fear were ironically fueled by success and ignited by failure. Pharmaceutical science worked hard and developed vaccines to first address the deadliest of infectious diseases. We baby boomers benefited. We didn't die in childhood. Life expectancy in the U.S. shot up. But we weren't given 25 inoculations in our first 15 months of life, and another 16 by the time we were 18 years old. We got our vaccinations as school-age children. Our immune systems were fully functional by that time. There were also fewer vaccines for us to take. We were allowed to obtain some immunity the old-fashioned way by getting sick. There were no vaccines for these diseases, and I caught them all. Chickenpox, measles, German measles, or rubella, and mumps at age 12. It is what most of us went through at one time or another. But science rolled on to develop more successful vaccines. Those successes would eventually help fuel vaccine hesitancy, and greed rolled in. That greed ignited vaccine resistance. Pharmaceutical companies had discovered a new source of revenue vaccine development, and sales. So now we have vaccines for all the childhood ailments I weathered. That may be a good thing. Take measles, for instance. I earned a few days off from school and was bothered by chills and a rash that made clothes feel uncomfortable. Then it was over. No harm, no foul. Seventy years later, I have been exposed to COVID before I was vaccinated and didn't catch it. No harm, no foul. But does that give me the right to poo-poo either disease and proclaim no one needs to be vaccinated? No. It only allows me to be grateful for my inherited genetics, the care I show my body, and my beautifully adaptive immune systems. I am lucky. More than a few others are not. My personal experiences do not permit me to accurately assess the seriousness of a disease. I wondered, for instance, why a measles vaccine was developed in 1963 when measles only gave me a rash and fever for a few days. I had to investigate. I was surprised to discover that measles would kill up to 2.6 million people in any given year before 1963. 
Expanding global measles vaccination programs have prevented an estimated 23.2 million deaths from measles worldwide between just 2000 and 2018 inclusive. Global measles deaths have decreased by 73% from an estimated 536,000 in 2000 to 142,000 in 2018. At the present moment, COVID-19 is the worst pandemic in scale and speed to hit us over the last 100 years. It is associated with the highest number of global deaths, with most of the deaths ironically in high-income countries. Risk factors such as increasing age, obesity, and comorbidities, including pulmonary diseases, diabetes, cancer, and neurological diseases, drive the infection and fatality rates. Although the infection and fatality rates are lower compared to other infectious diseases such as Ebola or yellow fever, the global toll in terms of deaths is far higher due to its high secondary attack rates and a high rate of reproduction. COVID-19 has taken 5.5 million in the short time it has been with us as a result. But in that short time, we have also developed effective vaccines against SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 in record time. We are in a position to rapidly vanquish other infectious diseases due to advances in genetics, biochemistry, and medicine. But the social cohesiveness that allowed us to vanquish polio, for example, is gone. Far fewer families would be in mourning if there weren't so much resistance to COVID vaccinations. So why are so many people fighting to sustain their right to get sick and die? They do not trust the information they have been given about COVID-19 from the government, from the scientists, from the media, and or from the pharmaceutical industry. And they are ignorant of the science, of biology and biochemistry specifically, that might otherwise help them sort fact from fiction. Our educational curricula have de-emphasized science and the rational thought processes trained by the practice of the scientific method. Our media has been democratized, losing the filters that muffled loony messages. Instead, today, any point of view can find an audience and sow confusion. And we have lost the greatest generation. The young Americans who weathered the Great Depression and then slogged and fought their way through World War II came out the other side with a deep and clear understanding of what was needed to forge a better society. Certainly, many were scarred and damaged, but as a whole, they were grown-ups. They were able to resolve political differences and build a functioning government that spoke with authority and provided mostly competent leadership. The spoiled brat children of the greatest generation run the government today. They have lost their way among ridiculous partisan bickering more suited to the kindergarten sandbox than the halls of the Capitol. Sorry, I'm a grumpy geezer at times. The pharmaceutical industry has likewise lost credibility. It has abused the prestige earned by developing vaccines against tetanus, diphtheria, pertussis, and polio by pushing for the use of more and more vaccines. Too often, the vaccines are marketed based on a narrative that inflates the lethality of the diseases they are to prevent. Consider the HPV vaccine. Human papillomavirus, HPV, is the most commonly sexually transmitted infection. HPV is usually harmless and goes away by itself, but some types can lead to cancer or genital warts. In most cases, your body can produce antibodies against the virus and clear the virus within one to two years. 
Most strains of HPV go away permanently without treatment. Adding in the slim risk of cancer from HPV, the lethality of the disease is 0.007%, or 7 one-thousandths of one percent. Seven one-thousandths of one percent. Yet advertisements soberly cajole parents to sign up their sexually naive prepubescent children for the vaccine. The CDC places the HPV vaccine on its recommended schedule for children ages 11 and 12, with the added advice that the vaccine can be given at age 9. So do sexually inactive young children need the HPV vaccine because they might pick it up later in life and might not be able to clear it? I think not. The issues of when and whether to get the HPV vaccine is one to consider later in life. Marketing the vaccine to children based on a fear of cancer is unethical and unnecessarily manipulative. Eating McDonald's french fries is more dangerous. Parents should guard their small children against those carcinogenic bullets more than HPV. Hepatitis B and hepatitis A vaccinations at birth and 12 months respectively are also on the CDC list of recommended childhood inoculations. The lethality of hep B is 42 ten thousandths of 1%, of hep A, 3 to 6 tenths of 1%. Hepatitis infections are customarily found in adults, not infants. If the mother is not infected with hep A or hep B, there is little reason to inoculate the newborn. Even if the mother does carry hep A or B, her antibodies will pass over the placenta to her newborn child. The CDC also recommends inoculation against rotavirus at the ages of 2, 4, and 6 months. Rotavirus is the most common cause of serious diarrhea and vomiting in young children. It is highly infectious and can cause death through severe dehydration. Although children younger than five years are indeed the most susceptible population, an infant under one year should be breastfeeding. Probiotic bacteria and immunoglobulins in breast milk will provide natural protection. The lethality rate for rotavirus infection is 93 thousandths of 1%, extremely low. Furthermore, children, even those who are vaccinated, may get infected and sick from rotavirus more than once. That is because neither natural infection with rotavirus nor vaccination provides full protection from future infections. Cases almost always resolve quickly as long as both food and ample liquids are continued. Newborns and infants are indeed highly susceptible to infectious diseases, resulting in high mortality, particularly in resource-poor settings. The rationale for the immunization of infants is, therefore, well-intentioned. No one likes to see their child die from a preventable infectious disease. Neonatal immunization is meant to provide early protection for newborns and infants, narrowing the critical period of vulnerability we older folks survived when routine vaccination schedules started later in life. The current aggressive immunization schedule from the CDC outlines 25 inoculations encompassing 11 vaccines during a child's first year of life. Vaccines typically require several booster doses, which has resulted in the extensive vaccine schedules we have today, but nature still works to confound the grown-up scientists' best intentions to protect the children. Infants seem to gain only inadequate protection from many of the vaccines. This is partly due to the immaturity of the neonate and infant's immune system. 
A newborn infant's immune system has limited adaptive memory. The newborn must rely on its innate responses as the critical component in its immune response to vaccines in early life. The child will acquire little to no long-term protection. An infant's immune system has a typically baby-like reaction to vaccines, resulting in qualitatively and quantitatively poorer antibody responses compared to older children. The immune system is immature at birth and has to evolve during a lifetime of exposure to multiple foreign challenges throughout childhood into adulthood, including pregnancy, only to decline in old age. Maternally derived antibodies transferred transplacentally during gestation and in breast milk may also influence vaccine antibody responses in early life. Thus, the presence of antibodies transferred to the infant by its mother can inhibit the development of the infant's own response to both live and killed vaccines. If a baby has a good army of antibodies gifted to it by its mother, its antibody response to a vaccine will likely be poor. It is, one, the newborn's poor immune response to vaccines, and two, its reliance on immune factors gained from its mother for protection from disease that mandates breastfeeding for at least the first year of life. Nevertheless, in our zeal to slay all infectious diseases, clusters of vaccines are given to infants whose immune systems are immature. But the immature immune system is relatively unresponsive. That poses a problem. So research physicians and scientists have tried to kickstart the immune response in infants. To do this, they add an adjuvant to the vaccine. An adjuvant is employed to stimulate the immune response when the inactivated pathogen or its particles in the vaccine are known to poorly trigger an immune response. An adjuvant must be something foreign and toxic to the body, something that will immediately anger the immune system. Evidence shows that aluminum adjuvants, first discovered in 1921, stimulate innate responses via the intracellular inflammatory pathways leading to an adaptive response by T2 helper cells. Aluminum adjuvants are present in many diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis vaccines, hepatitis B vaccine, and hemophilus influenza type B vaccines. All five of these vaccines are scheduled to be administered to newborns within the first two months of life outside the womb. Why do I belabor this point of childhood vaccines when I am here to talk about COVID-19? Aluminum is in all foods. Most of the metal is eliminated in the feces after food is digested. However, aluminum is a neurotoxin. It is considered a toxic heavy metal along with lead, mercury, cadmium, and arsenic. It does not easily or quickly leave the body once it is absorbed. If injected as part of a vaccine, it is instantly inside the body, and its biochemical burden may perturb a child's biochemistry while doing little to stimulate the desired, long-lasting, adaptive production of antibodies in the infant. In short, it is potentially dangerous to an infant's neurological development. One vaccine shot with an aluminum adjuvant may be harmless, but 25 inoculations within the first year of life may introduce too much aluminum into an infant's brain. It may be healthier in the long run to work within nature's guidelines by doing all that is possible to enhance the health of the mother and support breastfeeding as the way to protect a child from disease in the first year of life. To summarize, in their zeal to conquer disease, medical science, biochemistry, and the pharmaceutical industry 
have moved in tandem to produce and recommend a legion of vaccines for the very young before the true long-term effects of such a program are fully understood. We still do not know the effects on the health and immunity of infant patients. The anti-vax movement has power and influence because they are perceived as fighting corporate abuses. The lay public does not understand fully why so many vaccines must be given. They feel, especially the parents, that the health of their children might be damaged. This paranoia carries over today to the new COVID vaccines. It is reinforced by the societal schisms wrought by income inequality and the general sense that if you are not the screwer, you are the screwee. It almost seems that every single person can point to someone who, or some corporation that, has taken advantage of, ripped off, oppressed, or lied to them. But the COVID vaccines from Moderna and Pfizer are safe. They lack the adjuvants found in many of the children's vaccines. Should you get the vaccine and its booster? Absolutely! Not getting the vaccine leaves enough members of our society readily vulnerable to infection, and that just feeds the evolution of new variants and prolongs the pandemic. I want to close by saying that my wife works at our local hospital. Each day, she brings home stories of COVID patients. They are from all age groups. They take up one-third of all the beds in the hospital. They clog the emergency room. Nearly all are unvaccinated. Each day, someone dies. This happens because most of the patients made a bad choice, couched in their own hubris, nobody can tell me what to do, or their gullibility, COVID is not serious, it's a hoax, or the government wants to control us, or the vaccines change your DNA. Don't be stupid. Avoiding the COVID vaccination just threatens others who may be vulnerable to the disease you can carry to them. So let's straighten up, pull this society back together, and do something smart. Let's do it the way we fought World War II, because we are at war. Thank you for listening. The Healthy Geezer theme music is by the Camden Jazz Trio. You can find episodes of the Healthy Geezer podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Pandora, iHeartRadio, Podcast Gang, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, and wherever you go to access podcasts. Episodes as well as written transcripts plus blogs on additional topics on health and nutrition are also available at our website, marktimmon.com. If you like what you hear, please tell a friend to tune in to the Healthy Geezer podcast and be sure to subscribe by hitting the subscribe button on your podcast directory's platform. If you have questions, I will do my best to answer them. Just send an email to mark at marktimmon.com. That's Mark with a K and Timmon with one M. All as one word, M-A-R-K-T-I-M-O-N dot com.